0: Hey everybody, welcome to uh, Christ Community Chapel. Really glad that you're here. Welcome all campuses and venues. Uh, So glad that you have uh, joined us. Uh, Christianity makes an amazing claim. And that claim is that you can change. Not in some small way, but that you can change radically and profoundly. So much so, that the Apostle Paul says it's like you're a whole new person. He says, if anyone is in Christ, their new creation, old things are gone. Behold, all things have become new. So if you are tired of who you are or what you have become, it is Jesus that can change you. And that's what this year is all about for us. We're calling it Transformed in 2018. And our desire is that we would experience the change that Jesus promises. And we'd experience that this year. Uh, This is the fourth week of a five-part series we're calling Shift, Five Ways God Shapes Us. And it came about from a discussion I was having with some staff members where I just was asking the question, What has God really used in your life to change you? Uh, First week, we talked about friends and how God can use friends to change us. Uh, The second week, we talked about mentors. Last week, we talked about suffering, and that was a tough one because suffering is one of those, uh, I think, uh, good and terrible gifts that God gives because God can use suffering to actually do surgery on our souls. Uh, Today, we talk about beauty the beauty of God. This is one of the most intriguing to me out of the five, maybe the most intriguing. And I was the one who, who chose this one uh, because the beauty of God, I think, has actually changed me. And I'm not even sure if beauty is the right word, but it's the word that the psalmist uses, uh, and he uses it in Psalm 27. And I'm going to read that psalm. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 27. This is a psalm of David. And I'm going to read uh, all 14 verses. And it's a little bit long, but it's important because I want you to get the whole feeling behind this psalm. This is what it says. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, And let your heart take courage, wait for the Lord. This is God's word. I find that song really interesting. I don't know if you noticed, but the vast majority of that song was about trouble. It's like trouble all over the place. David said, enemies are encamping around me, adversaries, there are false witnesses, uh, there are family issues with his father and his mother forsaking him. And in the middle of that, he says one thing, I want one thing I need, and that's to see your beauty. That seems so weird to me, because it doesn't seem like beauty is particularly helpful, right? If I'm thinking about when I'm going to contemplate the beauty of God, I'm thinking about sitting on my deck at night on a beautiful night when everything is going well, and then I have time to think about how beautiful God is or must be. So why does David, in the midst of trouble, because when arrows are flying and and people are taking pot shots at you at work and your kids are sick and the bills are piling up and you're having family conflict, it just doesn't seem like your mind will go to the beauty of of God. So why does David's go there? And what does it mean? Because David says this in the midst of all that trouble, I only need one thing. One thing will make me okay. And it's not safety, and it's not security, and it's not wealth, and it's not health, and it's not uh, peace. It's not even love. He says one thing will make me okay, and that's if I can see your beauty. That's what I want. Uh, Tim Keller uh, said this, and I, I read it years ago, and I've been thinking about it for a long time. He said, the difference between religious people and real Christians is that religious people find God useful, but Christians find God beautiful. The difference between religious people and real Christians, is that religious people find God useful, but Christians find God beautiful. In Genesis chapter 15, God speaks to Abraham, and he says to Abraham, I am your shield and your very great reward. And what he's saying to Abraham is saying, saying, Abraham, I'm not the kind of God that comes alongside of you to help you achieve and get what you want out of life. I'm not a means to an end. I am the end. I am your reward. And the sooner we get that, the sooner we really understand God. So there are three questions I want to answer. I want to answer, how does beauty work? What does it mean to actually see the beauty of God? And then what difference does it make? Okay, first, how does beauty work? Uh, another way to ask that question is, what exactly is beauty? Because I'm, I'm still not sure if beauty is the right word, because uh, beauty, at least in our culture and in English, uh, we usually think of physical attractiveness. But that's a very shallow understanding of beauty. Beauty is, is much different than that, much deeper than that, I think. Uh, my son Jeremy, when he was in elementary school, uh, he got a, a great teacher in elementary school named Mrs. Hirschman. We had moved from North Carolina, and uh, the school in North Carolina was not very good, and so when he came up here, he was behind in school, and he was painfully shy. And Mrs. Hirschman was the kind of teacher that that drew out of him, made him come out of his shell, and made him catch up, and it it was just a wonderful experience that year with Mrs. Hirschman. And I didn't realize how deeply it impacted my son until we were, uh, when he was about eight, uh, we were at a varsity basketball game, and sitting in a gym and watching the game, and I felt him change next to me. And I looked down at him, and he was staring off, he was staring at somebody. And I looked, and I saw that it was Mrs. Hirschman, that she'd come into the gym. And as she made her way up the bleachers, I could, fee- I could see his face flush, like he was getting all excited. And no one else in the whole gym was paying attention to this middle-aged woman who was walking up the bleachers because no one else saw her beauty quite like my eight-year-old son. And if I could have climbed into his little head at that time, I'm sure I would have heard the theme song for Miss America right then, right? (laughs) Beauty does something to us. That's one way that beauty works. Beauty attracts us. We, we are moved, we are drawn to beauty, which you can feel the psalmist say, one thing I want, I am drawn, I, I long for the beauty of God. To, to say that, it, to limit it to physical attractors misses the whole point because there are so many things that go into beauty. But we, one of the things that it does is it, it attracts us. I, I was watching a video not too long ago Of a a high school basketball team where the manager of the high school basketball team had special needs. And he loved basketball, but he couldn't play because of his special needs. So he was the manager of the team his whole high school career. And his senior year, he was managing the team. In the last game of his senior year, the coach told him he could suit up for the game. So he was sitting on the bench and he was just. He was shaking with excitement. He just loved being a part of the team. And it came towards the end of the game, and the coach called a timeout, and he put the kid in. And when he put it in, the whole gym became just, just frenzied with excitement. And the other team realized what was going on, and they let him shoot until he scored. And when he scored, the place went bananas. He scored seven points And when the buzzer sounded, the whole student body swarmed onto the court and lifted them on their shoulders. That video has been seen millions of times. Why? Because there is something of the kindness and the goodness and the compassion and the joy that happened in that gym that was beautiful. And even though we don't know the people, when we watch, tears still spring out of our eyes because beauty does something to us. Beauty attracts us. The second thing that beauty does is it captivates us. It captivates us. The psalmist says: if I could gaze on the beauty of the Lord, there's something about, you know, uh, when you watch a movie sometimes and the Uh, A man is in a crowded room, and he turns, and he sees the woman that he loves, you know, and you see her, and then everything else kind of goes out of focus. That's kind of what David says. David says, if I could see your beauty, all these other things that are going on in my life would begin to fade away because of you. I remember driving uh, one evening in October and I, I was driving up a hill, and there was an autumn moon just sitting on the top of the hill. It was huge, and it was kind of yellow and orange, and I, and I remember just stopping and just looking at it because there is something about beauty that, that captures our hearts, and that's what the psalmist talks about. The final thing that beauty does is it, it restores us. It can actually do something deep down inside of us that nothing else can do. I, I remember talking to a friend who was really, really burned out. And he decided to, to fly to Florida and just sit on a beach, on a beach chair, and look at the ocean. And he did it for three days. And he said, Just looking at the, the power and the beauty of the ocean, I felt put me back together again. There was something that. Some of us do it with music. If you love music, you can go home, put on headphones after a hard day, and just have the beauty of music cascade over you until you feel your soul start to come back together again. David, in his most famous psalm, Psalm 23, talks to me, he says, he restores my soul. And the beauty, just the beauty of Psalm 23 actually does something to people, which is why we read it so often at funerals. When the last time you heard Psalm 23, is tell you what, let's do this. Go ahead and close your eyes, and I'll recite Psalm 23. Just let it kind of flow over you right now. You ready? Close your eyes. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the quiet waters. He restores my soul. You can open your eyes. Some of you fell asleep. Beauty has the power to attract you, to captivate you, to restore you. That's how beauty works. Now, the question is what does it mean to see the beauty of God? Because I can't, like, take you and show you God in all of his glory. I can't take you by the hand and walk you through a door and say, Behold the origin. Of all love and all joy and all compassion and all kindness. Behold the headwaters of all that is good, all that has ever been good, is good, ever will be good. Behold Him. One day we will walk through those doors and we will see God in all of His glory and all of His beauty. Oh, by the way, and that's why because you will see that someday. That's why most of our questions about heaven won't make any sense once we're there. Questions like, will, will my pet be in heaven? Will I recognize my spouse in heaven? If people go to heaven, and they can, can they see what's going on here? And if, if so, does it make them sad? I've heard all those questions. The reason those won't make sense is um, if you've ever been to Niagara Falls, you know, the closer you get to the, to the to the falls, the more you'll get little droplets of water on you because they, it makes a mist, because of the gallons, the millions and millions of gallons of water that are endlessly cascading over those falls. right? Every second, those produce these droplets. Your most beloved pet, tiny little droplet the deepest joy you have ever experienced in this lifetime? Droplet. Do you think you'll you'll even consider for a minute the droplets of this life when you are plunged into the very headwaters of all joy, all love, all grace, all kindness into the very depth of God himself? So, How do we see the beauty of God? It's almost like uh, me taking you to see an artist and walking through a gallery of his work. And as we walk through that gallery of his work, you get a a deeper appreciation for uh, the artist, a a deeper excitement of meeting the origin of this beauty. So uh, I read books. Most of you know that. And I read books mostly about the beauty of God, about God in one way or another. And every time I read something new about God's beauty that strikes me, I feel like I have to tell somebody. And the reason is because every time I tell somebody a story about the beauty of God, whether it be part of the, the macro beauty of God or the micro beauty of God, then I feel like I am more attracted, more captivated by this God who created all that is but still loves God me, loves you so passionately, so deeply, that he cares about every part of your life. And there's something about that that can make life just stop and fill me with wonder. And more than that, there are times that can deliver me from fear, from anxiety, and from grief. That's what beauty can do. So I'm going to I'm going to tell you two stories about beauty. One about macro beauty, about um, kind of creation, and one about micro beauty, about God's love for a single person. I just because I, I learned these these two things just this last uh, week and a half because I've been on a reading binge. And this is the I'll tell you the micro or the macro one first. This is about creation. You know Genesis 1:1 says, "In the beginning, God created the heavens." and the earth. Oh, by the way, uh, the Bible is the only uh, piece of religious literature that says that God acted outside of time and space and everything that you that is around. Matter, energy, time all had a beginning. The Bible is the only piece of religious literature that claims that. And now scientists, by the way, are dealing with the idea that all the evidence points to the fact that at one time Time, matter, energy, space did not exist, and then it came into existence in a moment, in a flash, and they call that flash the Big Bang. All right. But let me read you this other passage. This is from Colossians. This is one of my favorite passages. And it says, uh, this, this is talking about Jesus. Jesus, is, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I love that whole passage. There's something, I don't know, Niagara foolish about that, right? So I like that. All right, so this is what I learned. You know, the universe is monstrously huge. It's actually 27 and a half billion light years in diameter. And in the universe, there are all kinds, there are millions, maybe billions of different galaxies. And there are three types of galaxies. We know this now. There are elliptical galaxies, there are irregular galaxies, and there are spiral galaxies. Uh, We exist in a spiral galaxy called the Milky Way. And the Milky Way really is is the only, the spiral galaxy is the only kind of galaxy that life can exist in. What I'm telling you is what's called, by scientists now, phys- uh, cosmologists call this the Goldilocks zone, which is where we live. You know, the, the old story about Goldilocks that, you know, one was too hot, one was too cold, one was just right. We live in a just right place. So we live in the only type of galaxy that can support life. Uh, we need, you need to have a rocky planet to support life, like the Earth. And then you have to have a star that's close by, about the size of our sun. But it has to be a class G, third generation star, bachelor star. That's what they call it. And I didn't know that. Stars sometimes come uh, in binary. They have two stars called binary stars. It has to be a bachelor star. You need a a large moon that keeps that rocky planet tilted at just the right uh, tilt in order for life to exist. It would be helpful to have a big planet like Jupiter that's sweeping around like a big vacuum cleaner that has a big enough gravity pull to pull all the meteors out of the air so that we don't get hit by meteors. Now, all that's called the Goldilocks zone, but that's not what I got pumped about. There's another thing called the anthropic principle, and I've known about this principle for a while because I've read about it. Uh, Anthropos is the Greek word for man. The anthropic principle is the idea that there are... uh, more than 100 measurements that have to be just right in the universe for human beings to exist. And it seems like the entire universe is designed with one thing in mind, and that's for mankind, for humankind to live. And It was actually uh, started back in 1973 by a guy named Dr. Brandon Carter who delivered a paper in Krakow, Poland. All right, Now, this is the new one, the new measurement they just figured out. See if I can get this right. Um, one of the things they found out is uh, at the moment of the Big Bang, all matter came into existence. You know you probably learned in science that uh, matter cannot be created or destroyed, which is true, which means that the matter that exists in the universe is all the matter there is. there's no mat- new matter being created it's. It's all, the, And what they found, what scientists have now discovered, is that it had to be just the right amount of matter. Because if there was more matter than what exists right now in all the planets, in all the stars, in all the meteors, in all the universe, if there was just a little bit more matter, then what would have happened at the Big Bang is that it would have, it would have exploded into existence and then collapsed on itself because gravity would have pulled the matter in too fast. So you had to have just the right amount of matter. Now, how much more matter do you think would have to exist in order for the universe not to exist? Any guesses? About the size of a dime. <laughs> that much more matter and you would not exist. No wonder David says, all I, need to, all I need to see in all this trouble in my life, all I really need to see is the beauty of a God who is so big and so powerful and so precise that he can create a universe this huge where every single thing is dialed in just right so that I can exist. All right, that was one thing I learned. Here's the story, though. I like the story better than this. There's a woman named Stephanie Fast. She was born in Korea right at the end of the the Korean War. Uh, She thinks her dad was an American soldier. Her mom was a single mom. Her father went back when the war ended. So she was born and she called herself a Tugi, which meant that she was a half breed and she was despised. When she was four years old, her mom abandoned her. This is why her mom abandoned her. Her mom put her on a train and said to her, listen, go to the end of the, of the line. When people get off, you get off, your uncle will be there waiting for you, but you're going to have to live with your uncle for a while. So this four-year-old little girl got on the train, trusting her mom, went to the end of the line, got off, no uncle. She stayed there all night, nothing happened. So she ended up having to live, she had to live on her own from the time she was four to the time she was seven. She survived by stealing food out of rice paddies, uh, catching field mice, eating locusts, eating whatever she could. It was just amazing she survived from four to seven. At seven years old, she was left for dead. She had been beaten and abused and was emaciated and all that. And a World Vision worker uh, came, and and this World Vision worker actually worked for an orphanage, but the orphanage only cared for babies. And she saw Stephanie, but Stephanie was seven years old, so she was too old for the orphanage. Plus, she could tell that she was almost dead already. So this world vision worker thought, I can't care for her. So she started to walk away. When she started to walk away, she says her legs got heavy and she heard an audible voice in English say two words. The voice said, she's mine. She's mine. So this worker went back and she pulled Stephanie into her arms and she took her to the orphanage. From seven to nine, Stephanie lived in the orphanage, and she cared for babies. At nine years old, she weighed 35 pounds. She was still just a mess. She said when she would get hungry, worms would crawl out of her nose. She had a lazy eye. She had sores all over. She would watch as couples would come into the orphanage, and they would pick children to be adopted. And she watched as one American couple came in, and the, the man would reach down and pick up babies, and he was looking for the baby that he was going to adopt, and he wanted to adopt a son. And he would hold the baby up to his face, and she said tears would come down his, uh, his cheeks. And she felt herself longing and moving closer to him, even though she didn't know why. And part of it was that she was just being attracted. She just needed to be loved. And he noticed her, and he put the baby down, and he got down on his knees, and he put his face on her hand. Put his face on her, or his hand on her face. And she said, "I never felt anything better than that my whole life." And then she says she did something inexplicable, even to herself. She got scared. She pushed his hand away, and then she spit in his face twice, and she ran away. The next day, she was called into the director's office. And she knew she was in terrible trouble. And the American couple were standing in the office and she thought, I'm going to have to apologize to them and then they're going to kick me out of the orphanage and I'll be on my own again. And the American couple looked at her, looked at the director, and said to the director, she's the one we want. She's ours. And of course, that's what, what adoption is in the Bible. When God looks at any of us, we're not the babies that everybody wants. We're the babies that nobody wants. We're the ones that spit in God's face and still God looks at you and says, you're mine. I want you. I want you. The more you know the beauty of God, the more you are drawn to him, the more you are captivated by him, the more you understand who he is. Now the question is, what difference does it make? Does beauty really have the power to change you? And of course it does. Beauty has the power to change any of us. I'll tell you this, when I was in college, I met my wife, Karen. And when I was in college, I, I, I was, a, I, well, I've always been this, I'm a creature of habit and a creature of comfort which doesn't translate very well into uh, how a college guy dresses. So I wore the same jeans and the same football jersey every day. Every day. The football jersey was made of some kind of material that I don't know if they make it anymore. It would, I'm sure it's in a landfill. It's been in a landfill for several decades. It looks exactly the same. Right? That thing was never going to wear out. But that's what I wore every day until I met Karen. Karen. And what happened is I slowly changed, and I changed because I had never known anybody that I was drawn to like that, her beauty on the outside her beauty on the inside. And what I would do is look at her face, and I realized that when I combed my hair, it made her smile. So I started combing my hair. Right? One day, uh, I, I, we went on a date, and I uh, decided to do something different. I don't even know where I got these clothes, but I had my jeans on, I had a button-down shirt, and I had a sport coat on. And she looked at me, and she her face lit up. And she said, you look so handsome. And Operation Look Good started that day. <laughs> what, makes, what makes change worth it? Oh, beauty does. That's why the psalmist, David, in, in Psalm 27, verse 8 says, you have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Your face, do I seek. I would change almost anything for the beauty of my wife's face. But as beautiful as she is, she's like a droplet. Can you imagine what it would be like to do something for God, to obey God in such a way that you make his face light up and smile. (laughs) Do you want to change? Do Do you want to be what God created you to be? You don't need a different job. You don't need more success. You don't need health. You don't need a new spouse. What you need is to see his beauty. And this is what I want all of us to do. Let every droplet of goodness, every droplet of kindness and compassion and power and beauty remind you that there is a headwater that that moves so deep and so strong and is so full that the more you, that it's almost unimaginable, but the clearer you see him, the more you'll be attracted to God, the more you'll be captivated by God, the more you will be radically and profoundly changed by this God who created you, redeemed you, and calls you by name. Transformed. 2018. By the beauty of God. By the beauty of God. Let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, we come to you. And you are uh, the one uh, who we long to know. Uh, Your beauty is what we long to see. I pray that you would help all of us uh, to be able to, um, to understand and to see your beauty in such a way that we'd be more attracted to you than ever, that we'd be more captivated by you and that you'd actually change us and give us uh, the desire to obey you more than ever. Thanks. We pray this in your blessed and lovely name. Amen.